The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quirky Dog Podcast, inspired by some of the quirkiest dogs you can ever imagine and the owners who love them. This podcast is brought to you by the quirky couple themselves, Scott and Jess Williams. Their aim is to educate and entertain. Here's Scott and Jess. Welcome, guys, and happy Wednesday. Today we have a very special guest joining us from sunny Florida. And this is a concept that um, she has come up with earlier this year. I saw it pop up, and we just had to get her on the podcast. Jamie Robinson is with us here today, and she is launching Service Dog Games International. It's this awesome way for people who have service dogs or dogs who have service dog training to submit their training and, you know, play games and get titles and everything else. My quirky tip, though, before we do our interview with Jamie Robinson is... I want you to follow the Service Dog Games International website, and that URL is sdgamesintl.org. They all will be linked in the description, all the um, URLs that we're going to talk about throughout the show, and that will be the first one I link. So, Jamie, thank you so, so much for joining us here today, and welcome to the Quirky Dog. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about how you came up with this concept um, and kind of how this whole idea came to fruition. Basically, it was a friend of mine who we were talking in chat one day on Facebook, and she mentioned that at one point she used to use demo dogs as kind of an Olympics for service dogs. Uh, she trained hearing dogs. And I came up with the idea right after that and immediately went to GoDaddy and registered a domain name. Awesome. Great. So, so this is really early on in the stages. So tell us a little bit about where you guys are at in this progress and how things are developing um, over time here. We've got most of the titles set in stone at this point. Uh, there may be changes later, but we've got from puppy through champion and some specialty titles for those who don't want to necessarily do games that wouldn't necessarily be part of their dog's task. So we set up the specialty titles. Uh, they aren't on the website yet. I'm still working on those. Everything else is up there. Um, then we started the Facebook group and started getting people in there and, and getting them excited on earning titles for their dogs. Yeah, awesome. Um, and people can submit from all over. That's why we call it international, right? We're talking anywhere from the world you can submit. Yes. Anywhere in the world with the laws of where you are. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of things um, are people submitting? Explain a little bit about these titles and you know who this is basically built for, if that makes sense. It's built for anybody, but specifically service dogs. Part of the whole concept is that eventually we're going to start supporting ideas, supporting advertising campaigns to make people aware that service dogs are not pets and that you should leave them alone in public because they're doing a job. So the whole point of the Service Dog Games International is to celebrate what these dogs can do. There are so many things that a service dog does that most people don't realize. So the people that are joining in this endeavor are ones who want to say, hey, look what my dog can do. And this is how it helps me in my life. 
Yeah, that's, so that's awesome. What we're doing with this. So when people submit, are they submitting privately to the organization or is it a public submission where everybody can see? What does that process look like? It's a private submission. And then I'll have, you know, approvals. Can I put your videos up or your whole videos for your title? Um, some people will, some people won't. This isn't the first time I've done something similar to this. I did canine parkour for a while as well. Um, but it'll be up to the individuals whether they want their videos to be showcased. Okay, great. And my, what, go ahead. My videos will be. Yeah. I have a couple clients right now who have signed agreements to have their, their training with their dogs put up as demos. Okay, perfect. And what kind of, like, it, as a just general title, like, explain some of the tasks that people may be able to choose from or what type of submissions they'll be showing in their videos? I'll take novice, okay? So, in novice is basically the standard type of first level of any types of games like this. Um, in novice, they would have to show a basic sound task like going to the door to say hey there's somebody knocking at the door or tapping their owner's knee as the owner is having possible seizure in an hour or so um this is all done with cues on this level um it's for a psychiatric dog doing deep pressure therapy mm -hmm. so all the things that the dog would be doing as a service dog, the tasks that they do to help their disabled human. Okay, awesome. And what is your history with service dogs? Because I assume that um, you have some basis here to be one of the main developers and the founder of this. Yeah, mainly I'm a behaviorist. Okay. I have a degree in behave animal behavior, um, and I've been doing behavior for many, many years, a little over 50. Um not real keen on obedience. <laughs> um, and back in the mid-2000s, I started getting requests from people to fix their dog's behavior issues and come to find out that many of these people had dogs from the big programs for service dogs. Okay. And I asked them, why do you come to me? Why not go to the program where you got the dog? And the standard answer was they won't fix it. They just offer us another dog. So. In the process of helping these people with the behavior issues that their dogs had gotten over the years, PTSD being one of the biggest ones because they got attacked by strange people or strange dogs off leash, um, I said, I can do better. So I started training service dogs. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, that is true. The service dog, I mean, we've seen that with clients. It's just the organizations have changed a little bit over time as far as yeah. the types of dogs that are actually going out and you know, working with the public and how sound they are, solid or anything else. So would you see dogs with a lot of reactivity? What kind of behavioral issues were coming in? Reactivity mostly, but it was PTSD type reactivity where a dog has a choice. They can either fight or flight. That's pretty standard with almost all mammals, almost all animals. Um, and some of them would choose fight. So they would end up being reactive and even to the point of aggression, based on one incident of getting attacked in a grocery store or something like that by a dog or, or even humans. Yeah. Humans can be pretty mean, too. So 
that was the main thing that I saw. There was some issues of he won't task anymore, um, which was usually based in fear. Yeah. Or because back in that day, in those days, the methods that were used weren't exactly what I would choose to use. Mm -hmm. So reactivity was a big thing. Fear was another one, which is part of reactivity as well. Um, and then not wanting to task anymore. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people are self-training service dogs also, um, you know, especially from a professional training perspective, they're not necessarily getting dogs from an organization, but they have very good training and they're, you know, truly working in the field and doing what they've been trained to do and they're actual service dogs. So this is a great venue for those people to showcase their own skills and everything as well. I feel like. Yes, it is. And that was one of the reasons that I started this was because there's so many owner trainers out there that number one, don't have a curriculum to follow. They just look at YouTube or listen to people on social media and they, you know, okay, so you train this, but how do you train it? Or what are the steps up leading up to it? Because it's not a one-on thing. You can't just teach a dog to do DPT or brace because you need to stand up. You know, there's preliminaries to it. Or you're just basically forcing the dog to do something that it's not prepared to do. Yeah. Um, so the owner trainers, you know, I've tried to get people to understand that they need a curriculum, something that they can follow, right or wrong. It's a step-by-step thing to do rather than a hit or miss by watching YouTube videos or listening to somebody's advice on Facebook. So that that was the biggest thing that I had when I first went into this is I need to get through to these people that there is a way to train these dogs and get a product in a lot less than three or four years, which a lot of owner trainers are taking to get their dogs trained because they don't have a step-by-step method of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And what about the washout stuff? Because we talk about this a lot. You know, you can have a whole litter of puppies that, you know, are bred specifically for this work. And a lot of those dogs get washed out. So what would your recommendation be for people who are trying to, you know, work with their own dog, but maybe not actually hitting the mark that they need to um, hit? Does that ever pop up or do you have any advice for those people? It does pop up. And at that point, you basically have to decide whether the dog is going to make it all the way up to your expectations or can you lower your expectations? Because the definition in the U.S. of the service dog and in most other countries is a dog that does work or tasks for a person who is disabled. And that work or task must be directly related to the disability. It doesn't say how many tasks. One is enough. It says in public, the dog must be under control or easily brought back under control and potty trained. It says nothing about obedience or being able to focus 24 seven on the the owner or anything like that, which is a lot of what's going through the owner trainers is that the dog has to be perfect. And that's not true according to the law. Yeah. So that's the way I see it. Yeah. No. And it's just important for people to realize that once they hit a certain point, um, you know, maybe they look for another dog and they make this dog just a companion. Or like you said, maybe they change their expectations to make it work. But these dogs do have to be solid out in public. I mean, that's why the ESA laws were changed, because too many people were flying with dogs that 
you know, we're biting other people on the planes, you know, getting reactive towards, you know, true working service dogs. And, you know, it's not just a pet dog that's out there in public with good manners. These dogs are trained for a specific purpose and they're helping their handler for specific purposes and with specific tasks for the disability. So I think that's an important line to draw for people. Yeah, they need to be calm enough and focused enough and able to handle distractions enough that they can do their job in public. Yeah. That's the main criteria that I push. Do you want that dog to be able to help you the way it's been trained to help you despite any distractions out in public? Yeah. So, you know, the the thing of washing is what are your expectations? Are you really going to be going out to concerts and malls every day? And or are you just going to go to the bank, maybe run over to the grocery store or you know, go to church, whatever their criteria is for what kind of level the dog needs to be on distractions. Yeah. And still be able to work. Yeah. So the wash rate is often based on what people have heard from other people on social media. Okay. You know, it had has to be perfect or it can't be in public, but that's not necessarily true. Yeah. And someone who's looking, um, you know, considering a service dog, uh, it's something new for them. Would you recommend that they get a puppy? How, how do you, what do you recommend for people that are, you know, looking for their next dog to, you know, either be trained through your curriculum or anywhere else? What do you suggest is the best way to go about that? Personally, I recommend getting a puppy between two months and six months old. Okay. Because that way the bond that you create with the dog is really, really tight. There are ways to evaluate a shelter dog, a dog in foster, or a dog that you're going to, you know, adopt off Craigslist. Yeah. And you can get probably a good 80% certainty that the dog will make it. But again, you may have to cut your expectations short because the reason that dogs end up in these situations in rescue is because their owners found something wrong with them. It may be a perception because the owner was, has expectations that the dog's not meeting and there's nothing really wrong with the dog. And that's one of the things that we look for in a good evaluation. Um, but if you want a really good bond, I would say no, no older than six months. Yeah. And do you recommend specific breeds or what is your thought process there? The only breeds that I personally don't recommend are hounds. Okay. Because there's, they're either slaves to their sight or slaves to their nose. I mean, can you imagine a bloodhound? <laughs> you yeah. know, they sniff everything. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And I've actually trained a few bloodhounds for service work, and we've managed to get it to work. But, you know, I warn them that the dog is a slave to its nose. So be, be aware of what's going on. Um, that's the only breed that I don't recommend. Okay. I've trained everything from a three-and-a-half-pound chihuahua to a 200-pound borble. Okay. South African Mastiff. <laughs> yeah. We just did a borble um, in training this past summer. They're beautiful dogs. Oh, they're, they're gorgeous. Yeah. My daughter, my sister raises them. Oh, okay. They're a little uh, hard to fly with. They're much better behaved away from their territory yeah. <laughs> than, than on their home turf. That they are. Yes. As are Great Pyrenees. Yep. Yes. Which I recommend a lot for people needing mobility, you know, especially heavy mobility. You could put a saddle um, on them. <laughs> I'm sorry. You could put a saddle on the dog and they take you for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> my, my 
daughter has a great parenting. So yeah. Um, Could you tweet apart um, some of these different um, like uh, options with service dogs? Because everybody mostly thinks like seeing eye dog or hearing dog, but we're talking about mobility dogs. You mentioned, you know, um, psychiatric service dogs. Can you just explain some of those different categories and how dogs are being used more frequently in the field now than ever really before? You know, we talked about the epilepsy alert dogs. There's obviously diabetic alert dogs. If you could just touch on some of those different categories a little bit. It started out with this um, hearing dogs and guide dogs. I actually found a hearing dog one time in a pound, the SPCA here, and adopted it just so I could get it to somebody who needed it. That was back in the late 80s. Um, and then in the late 90s, early 2000s, people started noticing that their dogs were you know, doing strange things around them, and then they discovered they were ill, whether it be cancer or just before a seizure or whatever. And cancer was the first thing that people started training for. And then diabetic, of course, came along, um, which is my thing. And so the medical alert was one of the first things that came up. Psychiatric alert has pretty much been the last thing that's come up. Mobility comes from the guide dogs, the hearing, the seeing eye dogs, because a lot of what was needed from a guide dog was to be able to brace when the owner tripped over something that the, either the dog didn't notice or the human didn't listen, mm-hmm. which is a big issue. Yeah. Humans don't listen yeah. to the dog. <laughs> it's really tough in medical alert because I know that my my anaphylaxis people, my mass cell activation people, the dog can alert them up to an hour to an hour and a half before they're going to have an anaphylaxis attack. And they don't listen because they don't feel anything yet. I don't feel sick. Yeah. You know, so, and it's the same with the psychiatric dogs who have learned to actually smell a panic attack coming on. Okay. Um, Or a non-epileptic seizure, Mm -hmm. which comes from panic attacks and anxiety. Yep. So they can give a good five to 10 minute warning, but these people have been told that triggers are instant and they immediately go into a panic attack. And it's not true. Not according to the dogs at any rate, they can give a five to 10 minute warning. Yeah. Um, Then you have dogs that do autism support and can actually smell out a, a child who's about to take off. Um, or have a meltdown. They can smell that within five minutes or so. When you see the dog head for the hills, um, you know something's up. <laughs> or you can train it to do an actual specific behavior. Yeah, of yeah, like, yeah, with yeah, my yeah. MCAS, like with my MCAS people, which is one of my big things right now, um, the dog actually will capture their foot if they're walking and they just pass something that will give them an anaphylactic attack. And the dog grabs their feet and says, stop, you're going to have, you know, get out your Benadryl and drink it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny in the MCAS world, um, drinking Benadryl is from a big gulp, <laughs> <laughs> not from a little. <laughs> so I know you're still in the development um, for this, you know, Service Dog International Games. You're looking for evaluators, instructors. What are you seeking out right now? Like what will help this grow to the level that you're looking for it to grow? What helps right now is people telling other people. Okay. So get getting the word, the word out. out. Yeah. Yeah. So the more people we get into the 
the Facebook group um, and the more people signing up to do their title, get the titles for their dogs and buy the workbook so that they know exactly how, what it is they're going to be doing with their dog, especially if it's a task that they wouldn't necessarily need from their dog. Yep. One of the reasons for the tasks that I set them up is that so the dogs can become all around dogs. And it's amazing when you teach a dog to think and you teach a dog all these tasks that they might be able to do, they find reasons to do them for their human. Yeah. And when so you talk about getting the word out is the biggest thing right now. Okay. And when you talk about the workbooks, those can be found through your Etsy shop. I think you sent me that link too. I'll include that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So to get the workbooks, um, you can get those directly through the link in the show notes. Uh, the Facebook group will also be there to build awareness and to kind of build hype and everything else. What is your ultimate goal of where you would like to see this go? What is your kind of future vision of what you'd like this to look like in a year from now or five years from now? I know you're talking about making, um, you know, some advertisements and making service dogs, you know, it's a do not touch policy, you know, it, it kind of bringing some awareness and education to that. But what else are you looking to grow and build with? That's the biggest thing I'm looking to, to grow. The other thing is actually producing a curriculum for people. Um, I'd like to revamp the CGC levels that the AKC has, which a lot of, especially owner trainers use to, to test their dog's progress in obedience. Um, I'd like to have like service dog levels that test the service dog's progress rather than an arbitrary progress based on obedience. Okay. Because service dogs have to be intelligently disobedient in a lot, (laughs) especially with medical alert. Yeah. They have to be able to say, no, you're not doing that because you're about to have an event. Yeah. Stop. (laughs) Take your meds. Yeah. So building awareness and building education. And I think it's super important right now because, you know, like we talked about the ESA thing when that, you know, became illegal. It's still legal for housing, I believe, but, you know, it's no longer legal for travel and everything else. We don't want the actual service dog industry to get diluted either. It's important to have a high level of integrity for these dogs that are out working in the field. And like you said, they don't have to be perfect, but the more that we're able to educate properly and, you know, show people what it's actually supposed to be like and how you should be treating these dogs as a civilian is super important. Yes. Very, very important. Yeah. Anything I missed, sweetie? No, I think it's interesting. I mean, when you simplify it the way you have um, in the description of a service dog, meaning, that they really only need to give one reliable behavior that's going to help their person. Um, and they don't need to have the great obedience, which means, I'm not saying, that obviously they can't be reactive, but they can be managed through very busy areas on a shorter leash. Uh, yeah. It really does open up, you know, the possibility for a lot more people to have a dog that is a working dog that doesn't do everything and it's not necessary uh, to do everything. But, but getting reliability in one behavior that's going to help them is really the criteria based on what you're telling me. Right. And the way I set up the levels is that novice is the entrance. You can either push through to get your champion, go straight to your champion if you're already a trained team, or go straight to your specialty levels from novice. Okay. I require the novice so that I know that they're, you know, they actually know what they're doing as a dog and as a human and as a team. And then they can pick whether they want to do the intermediate and ex- expert levels to get to champion, go straight to champion, 
or do just specialties so that they don't have to worry about tasks that they don't think they'll ever use. Yeah. No, I think it's set up really nicely. And I just, go ahead, what were you going to say? Well, one thing I wanted to ask, and it's an aside from the organization that you're developing, but I noticed on your website that I was interested in because I used to live in Southern California and I was involved in the uh, snake avoidance training in a traditional sense there. And uh, you had said on the website that you were teaching it without shock collars. And I was just curious if you could just kind of hit on how the approach you have that's, because even with, it was interesting, like a lot of times when dogs come up on a, on a snake, the snake is just sunbathing. The snake is not even moving. It's not making any noise. So they need to pick up on that smell or they just run right on, onto it or over it because they're not seeing it. It's like a stick on the path. You know what I mean? And I was just wondering right. what, what you were, how you approach that because it was interesting to see. Uh, of course, nobody wants to use an electric collar. It's amazing how many people will throw an electric collar on their dog and they're violently, ethically opposed to it. But if it's for the sake of rattlesnake avoidance training, they'll do it. Right. You know, and a, a lot of a lot of positive reinforcement trainers will bend the rules just for that. Right. Um, however, the snake avoidance without shock program has been around since 2012 when I developed it. Um, and it's it's pretty much worldwide at this point, wherever there's snakes, there's it's been used. Plus, it's been used for scorpions and black widow spiders and various other dangerous critters here in Florida. Of course, I've used it for alligators. Um, but with snakes, interestingly enough, I test any dog that wants to come into the program by having them smell the snake smell. Right. And 80% of them shy away. Yeah, it's just not a pleasant smell to them. They don't, instinctively, I think they just know that snakes are dangerous. Right. So, you know, um, with those dogs, some of the, the owners still want to train, but I tell them you don't need to. They'll stay away from them. However, the ones that will walk over the top of the snake, it may be that the wind is blowing in the wrong direction. Right. No, it's they just they the smell is going the wrong direction. And they don't see um, it. Yeah. It's the same with search and rescue dogs and all the other dogs that do detection work. If the breeze is going in the wrong direction, they're not gonna smell it. And so there's no there's no type of avoidance training that would ever work in that case because they don't see anything to avoid and they don't smell anything to avoid. They do see it, and sight is one of the things that we do work on. The other thing we work on is getting out of there fast. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my the games in the program that I use, even with uh, service dogs, you know, get me away from this, away, get away from it right now. And in many cases, a dog can move fast enough that they don't get bit once they do notice that something's coming after them. Okay. Yeah, that, it's really interesting. It's, it is interesting because that's counterintuitive to a lot of the protection dog sports where we're teaching them to always go through, go through right. environmental distractions, go through the water hose, go over the jump, don't go around the jump. It's always go through everything and getting right. them to feel like, you know, a police dog, they're, they're invincible. So they're actually going to go into a dangerous situation uh, without even giving it a second thought. So it's, it's yes, the, the opposite, the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. All right. I have one more question um, just about the titles and everything else, getting back to the service dog international stuff. So I assume because we're highlighting the dogs, 
it's the dog and human team, right? So if someone has a service dog that was retired and they're training one, the retired dog and the dog they're bringing up and training need to go through that novice level. You can't change up dogs level to level, I would assume, correct? No. Okay. I just wanted to make that note because I'm sure a few people out there listening are thinking, oh, I could do this with more than one of my dogs or, you know, something else. But you progress as a team. It's not just that you have... Yeah. Okay. And they have, if they do have more than one dog, which is legal yep. in the U.S., um, they have to register each dog. Okay. So that each dog gets their member ID. Okay. That way, when they submit their um, videos for the title, I know which dog it's supposed to be. Yep. Totally understand. All right. Anything we missed, Jamie? I think it's a super awesome concept, and I'm really excited um, to help you get the word out there. Anything we missed on the Service Dog International Games front? No, I think you got it all. All right, <laughs> More great. More than I expected. <laughs> well, great. I'm so glad that um, we could highlight this. Like I said, when I saw it pop up earlier this year, there was just a lot of positive feedback. And you know, in the dog world, it's hard to find something that everyone's just really excited about. You know, there's a lot of mixed reviews yeah. here, there, and everywhere. And of course, it's not going to be for everybody, but it is such a great way to highlight these dogs that do such amazing things that aren't going and competing and ending up on podiums. You know what I mean? It's a great way to really showcase the great training and the amazing dogs that are out there helping people day in, day out. So thank you for um, coming up with it. And I hope that it grows to everything you want it to be and more. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Yeah. thanks so much. Uh, Anything that's going to get people working with their dogs on any level, I'm all for it. (laughs) And not just dogs, because I'm also saying the miniature horses, of course, it is legal for the ADA. Yep. Pigs are really, really smart. Yep. I've trained parrots to do medical alert and other things. And cats. I've, I have about six cats in Phoenix that do seizure alert. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You never can underestimate an animal. They are the wave of the future. <laughs> All right. Thank you so, so much for joining us here today. You guys, if you have any questions about any of this, there's going to be a bunch of links in the description to um, figure out different ways to get these books and these manuals and all of Jamie's links that she offers, even some of her business stuff, and you will be able to contact her through the website. Um, if you have any questions directly, uh, feel free to write us at studio at thequirkydog.com. And in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great rest of your week and keep it quirky. Quirky. Thanks so much, Jamie. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.